couple of things before we go to Psalm 50, verse 5. I'm just going to start with that, and we're going to kind of springboard into a, another subject. It dawned on me as I was writing this sermon, which will be my last sermon before my 12-week sabbatical. And in this pulpit, we'll have a, a number of our elders, we'll have visitors, and I fully expect that everybody will be here. Right, Frankie? For all those 12 weeks. Also, um, just, uh, just an update. Um, we, we've been praying for, for Eddie's mom, Maria. She went to be with the Lord this week, so uh, this last week, as did Karen, Greg, amen, and, and who we were praying for. So, I'm sorry? Maria, Eddie Anorga's mom. Um, I went to be with, with the Lord this week, and, um, and, and Mike, Greg's sister-in-law, Karen, as well. So keep those families in your, in your prayers. All right, so we're looking at Psalm 50, verse 5, and like I said, we're going to use that kind of to spring into a, a topic here. I've entitled the sermon, Gather My Saints. How to Church is the subtitle. Like, what are we doing here? You know, like, what... Are we all doing this right, this thing called church? We're going to discuss that a little bit, and what's supposed to happen in church. But here, let's start with Psalm 50, verse 5. It was part of the call to worship. God says, gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, recognizing that you've called us to gather And we do pray that as we have gathered in your presence in this very unique and sanctified way, that our eyes would be more fully opened to appreciate what a wonderful God you are, your glory, your beauty, your majesty, your grace, your wisdom. We pray, Father, that that would be first and foremost in our hearts in terms of our chief end, which is to give you glory. And of course, we recognize that with that, we benefit greatly when we are focused on that which is good and right and true. So help us to be those kinds of people, Father, people of truth and love and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no small amount of confirmation bias, and that's a new term that many, many of you are probably familiar with, steamed off the words of the 5th century theologian Augustine. You guys have heard of Augustine, probably one of the most respected theologians in human history, both Roman Catholics and Protestants and the Orthodox, they all love Augustine. And he made a statement that everybody kind of grabbed and interpreted their own way. And he said this, he said, I would not believe in the gospel if the authority of the Catholic Church did not move me to do so. So Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church took this quote as an affirmation of its own ultimate authority. In case you were wondering, what's the difference between like a Protestant church and a Roman Catholic church? One of the big differences, probably the heart of the, big, of the difference is that the Protestant church views the Bible alone as the sole infallible message from God to us. Where the Roman Catholic church would, would, would add tradition, so they believe the Bible, but tradition and the magisterium of the church, popes and bishops and so forth. So they're going, well, there you have it. Augustine thinks the church is the ultimate authority, but Protestants and more biblical-thinking Roman Catholics, even of the time, did not view Augustine's words as placing the authority of the church above the Scriptures, but as an acknowledgment of the role of the church as God's primary instrument in delivering the message of Scripture to a world in need of redemption. Hopefully you see the difference there that we're a church, and we have, we have this commission. We have our marching orders, and the marching orders is to fulfill that great commission. But ultimately, as you sit where you sit, the ultimate authority isn't coming from me. It's coming from the Word of God that hopefully you have on your laps. But as appears unavoidable with doctrine, and you see this all the time with doctrine, there's a pendulum that swings, right? People get things wrong, and everybody, they want to correct it, and so they're bringing it right down to center, but inevitably, that pendulum swings too far. One might say that this pendulum isn't the kind of pendulum you see in a clock. This kind of pendulum is the kind of pendulum you see 
in a book by Edgar Allan Poe, right? It's, got, it's a sharp pendulum, and it's swinging right over the heart of the church. Now, I believe by God's grace that it will not succeed in executing the church. I think God has promised that his church will be preserved. Nonetheless, there is this kind of penultimate problem, this, this semi-problem, and this, 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 this pendulum, I think, has been hacking off the limbs of the church. It's working to amputate those who should be part of the church, but have decided that the church is not necessary to their spiritual welfare. So we went from, during you know, the medieval period, going, it's all about the church, the church is our vehicle to heaven, to the church, maybe it's a good idea, but it's certainly not necessary vis-a-vis the wellness of my own soul, and I have uh, many other things that kind of at the top of my list when it comes to my own spiritual welfare. Now, this is not a new problem. This problem started a long time ago, because you have to realize there was a time when there was no printing press. So if you wanted to hear, and nobody, you know, and nobody had scrolls at home written on papyrus, you know, so if you wanted to hear the message, you had to go to church. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all about the printing press. I think what Gutenberg did was great, and you know the first thing they printed? Bibles. But it kind of created a little bit of problem, because now you've got a Bible on your shelf. Do I really need to go to church? Now, I'm not arguing against Bibles on your shelf. Well, maybe they shouldn't be on your shelf. Maybe they should be on your desk, open. I mean, who can argue against the Bible, you know, if, if you're reading it? But when the Bible begins to replace church, now you gotta run, you've run into a little problem. The expendability of the church accelerated, not only with the Bible, but with the writing of other books. You know, I can, I can read Thomas Aquinas now. Why do I need to go to church? Publishers then, rather than the church became the new de facto determiners of popular orthodoxy. So the, pub, the publisher would decide what you'll get to read when it comes to the Christian truth, rather than the church deciding what you would read. Then a radio came. I remember when radio came. <laughs> now you could sit in the comfort of your parlor, right, and listen to a sermon. Why, why go to church? I mean, when radio came, people didn't really have cars. You know, you had to get out there and get on your buggy, and it was probably an uncomfortable ride, but you could listen through the comfort of your own home. Then... Station managers got to determine who we get to listen to. Well, then television showed up, right? And then we have a whole new word. whole new word is created, televangelist. So now not only do you listen, you get to watch the person usually strutting back and forth on the stage. Today, we have social media, right? We have the internet that grants us access to the best sermons ever written. I mean, you could go on Sermon Audio and you can listen to sermons by Calvin and Spurgeon and John Edwards and Owen. I mean, why come here and listen to me when you can listen to Jonathan Edwards, who probably wrote the best sermons ever, right? Calvin's sermons. And so now, and I don't know who's in charge of the internet, Right? But whoever they are, they're kind of running the show now. So I guess the question I have to ask is, has the church, this event, has the church become a relic? Right? Are we outdated? Are we an anachronism? Are we, are we a sentimental, outmoded institution when we gather together? Of course, if one is reading their Bible or reading books about the Bible, or if they're listening to good sermons, or if they're, you know, whether, whether in their parlor or whether on TV or whether, you know, on sermon audio, guess what you're going to come across? You're going to come across the word church. That, if you're going to read your Bible, you're going to find that word, it's going to come in pretty quickly. And it is either specifically stated as church, the word church, ecclesia, or it's implied by phrases like, well, we saw today, right? Gather my saints. 
God saying, my people, my covenant people, and so forth. You're going to find that in your Bible, and you're not going to find it once or ten times or even a hundred times. You're going to find it hundreds and hundreds of times. Now, let me just say, the word church can be referring to a number of different things. You know, theologians, you know, they're like, well, we have the invisible church. And that is everybody who will ever believe in the past and the future. That's the true church, known really only to God. Then you have the, the universal visible church, and that is everybody who professes belief. And that's everybody who's in church anywhere in the world right now in some building someplace. See, you could listen to that sermon. That guy really sounded like he knew what he was talking about. So the word church can mean all sorts of different things, but let me tell you this, if you decided to actually do this, far and away, when that word comes up in the Bible, it is referring to local gatherings. Not not even a close second, it's referring to what we're doing right now, this group of people in this room in terms of, of the church. And these gatherings, if you read your Bibles, consist of things called pastors, it's in the scriptures, elders, deacons, and you know what else it consists of? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says the church consists of people who know each other and need each other. The the hand needs the eye. All right, you can't do that if you're home reading a book. You need to have some kind of a relationship with your pastor, with your elders, with the deacons, and with each other. Matter of fact, the big infraction at the church of Corinth that Paul really sat on them for was the fact that during the Lord's Supper, they were ignoring one another. That was the big problem, that you were eating, but they weren't eating, and you weren't waiting for them, and there was this idea that our communion is not just with God, it's with one another. So if you're kind of doing remote church, and I know there are some right now who are doing remote church, and I realize some of you live in other states, and that's great, but this, this is not your church if you're doing remote church. You've got to find a place to go. The hand, you're the hand, and the eye's like going, hey, where are you? Or you're the eye, and you're just one big lonely eye sitting in your living room. Missing, I think, the clear call in Scripture to be part of the local body of Christ, to be part of the church, I think can be compared to a fish who's oblivious that it lives in water. We tend to read our Bibles as if, you know, it's written individually. It's, like, it's written to me personally. Now, there are a couple of books in the Bible that are written to individuals, like Timothy, right? But it's written to Timothy about what? You may know what Timothy is, what that little epistle is called. It's called a pastoral epistle. It's written to Timothy in terms of how Timothy should govern the church. So the Bible isn't a matter. When we read the Bible, it's not just me alone. When you start reading your Bibles, what you're going to realize is that the Bible is written to the church, to the church at. It's not written. Paul didn't write to the community at Corinth. He wrote to the church at Corinth. When Paul said, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, he wasn't writing that to the broader outward community. He was writing that to people, if you will, sitting in pews, telling us. We forget that we're in the water if we're in the church. And let me tell you, if fish don't remain in the water, it doesn't really work out well for them. God's covenant people are the ones who receive the message. Just a couple of examples, but it's not a hard argument to prove. 1 Corinthians 1-2, right? It's also in 2 Corinthians, but to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Galatians 1-2, to the churches of Galatia. 1 Thessalonians 1-1, to the church of the Thessalonians. Philemon 2, to the beloved Apia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church, where? In your house. Early churches met in houses. Then when they got too big, they started meeting elsewhere. All this to say that people who think all they need is their Bible must contend with the overwhelming message that they're going to encounter when they read their Bible, and that is that they should be part of a church. 
if this clear admonition is ignored, it is to the great detriment of our souls. God has created a church to nourish us, as well as to glorify himself. Well, having said that, what is the prime directive of the church? I mean, if you were to go, I'm going to make a list of priorities of what the church should be, what the church should do. What's on the top of that depth chart? What, what is like this guy? This has to be number one. Is it friendship? Is it service? Is it family? Is it bonding? Is it, you know, cultural amelioration? We got to get together and make this world a better place and go down and, you know, fight the, the fight for in Washington, D.C. or something. I think all those things should be on the target, but I'm asking, what's the bullseye? What's at the center of the target? Well, as you may know, many of you have heard of Exodus, right? The Exodus in the Bible. Exodus is mentioned a lot throughout Scripture, and it's kind of an archetype example of deliverance, God delivering his people, literally from slavery of Pharaoh, but then it's used as an example of our deliverance from sin and death. God delivers us. So here's my question for you. What was at the very top of the list when we query, what did God require first and foremost when he freed the Israelites? What was, what was at the top of the list? Well, there are any number of passages I can appeal to, but I'll read this one to you, Exodus 3.18. This is where Moses is kind of going, I don't know if they're going to listen to me. And he's kind of going, don't worry, they're going to listen to you because I'm going to do some crazy things through you, right? I mean, that's, then C.B. DeMille is going to make a movie about it. <laughs> and they will listen to your voice. And you and all the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. Why? That we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That we, Deliver us out that we might have a worship service. In the Old Testament, that's what happened. When you had a sacrifice, it was like today we're going to do the Lord's Supper, right? In the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice. You sacrificed an animal. So let me tell you, I think it's a very healthy disposition to view all of life as worship. I don't think we should have this idea that, you know, one day in seven or a few hours a week is worship. I think all of life should be worship. I think Luther said, you know, if you're a bootmaker, make boots to the glory of God and so forth. And I, I think that is an important disposition for us to all have. But the chief bloodline of all that is good, nurturing, and redemptive, I would argue, and I think the Bible teaches, is a well-ordered corporate worship of the true living triune God. I think the chief bloodline, that, that which, if that disappears, we can, the church, if this disappears, everything else goes with it, is what we're doing right now. This idea of corporate worship. God has determined one day in seven where we, in a very undistracted manner, are to be reminded we're to be reminded of who made us, who redeemed us, who preserves us, who, who holds our hands in the midst of trial, whose feathers cover us, under whose wings do we take refuge. We are to be reminded without other things on our mind, right? That is our focus, Church is like a Sunday evening family meal, right? Where we're sitting at the table with the family. And it's been my experience that if you neglect that, you lose track of your closest relatives. And this is God's way of saying, let's not lose track. One day in seven, I want you to gather, and some things are going to happen. Well, that gets us to the next very somewhat controversial point, because this is so critical. What we're doing right now is so critical. This, this, if I can call it this event of church, that God goes above and beyond in his word to regulate it. It's called often the regulative principle. God is regulating what takes place. Let me explain that. I think it's a very important principle. 
We are to do in worship only what God commands to be done in worship. Like you might be going, what is so controversial about that? Well, let me push this a little bit. We're not free to be innovative. Hey, I got a clever idea. I went to a church service one time and somebody thought, and I had, I'm not questioning their motives. And if you know the history of this church, you know there were times when I did things that were not remotely <laughs> comporting to what I'm about to tell you. But I went to a church one time and they thought it would be a good idea to get a big wooden cross and put it on the ground, and we all stood in line to hammer nails in it to see what it would have felt like to hammer nails into the hands of Jesus. And I, you know what, I appreciate the point you were trying to make, but no, you don't get to do that. God has established what we are to do in worship. Now, it may again, it may seem obvious, should we not always do what God commands, but there's a little difference here. For example, God does not command me to go to the beach on a sunny day. But I am free to do so. Why? Because he does not prohibit it. Right? And I take advantage of that lack of prohibition (laughs) as often as possible. But in worship, it's not a matter of asking if God prohibits something. We must ask, is God requiring it? You see the difference there? There's nothing in the Bible, for example, that prohibits bubble machines in worship. Right? There's no verse that says, bring no bubble machine into the worship service. But I don't think we're free to have like a bubble guy. Where's the bubble guy this week? You know, we got to get the bubbles. That, that's the kind of innovation that gets churches in trouble. When I was... Um, when I was a kid, growing up in Hermosa Beach, we'd, we, my buddies and I would have our bikes and we'd ride by our neighbor, Mr. Graham. And he would see us and he'd squirt us with his hose. He's water and he'd squirt us, you know. And it was his effort, you know, toward camaraderie. I think it was driven by, you know, his affection for the neighborhood kids. And we're like, yeah, you know, and it was, it was, it was fun. Hey, Mr. Graham, hey, you know. So when I got married, I thought it would be a good idea idea for me to express my affection for my wife. (laughs) In a similar manner, it did not have the desired effect. (laughs) Somehow I had arrived at the misguided conclusion that my wife's buttons were comparable to an eight-year-old boy on a bicycle. (laughs) I had a lot to learn. Right, I needed to kind of figure out what, what is it that makes my wife feel loved and honored and cherished. And you know what was a good way to find that out? Ask her. <laughs> and she, let me tell you, she was pretty good at answering that question. My wife loves Christmas. I remember one of the first Christmases, she gave me a manila envelope, and it said, Christmas with Jen. And I opened it up, and everything was highlighted, and it's like, let me give you the regulative principle. I think that would help all of us. But you see, you need, the the way we worship tells us about what we think about God. And so God's very concerned about the way we think about him. And we don't, we should not think about him in such a way that the bubble machine makes sense. When Nadab and Abihu were devoured by fire for offering profane fire before the Lord, it wasn't because they did something that God had forbidden They did something, quote, which he had not commanded them. He didn't tell them don't do it. He didn't tell them to do it. As God commanded, we are to do everything, quote, according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. God is going, I told you how to do this. Exodus 25, 40. Now, let me just add one more thing here before I want to go briefly through all the elements of worship that we do. This could have been a two-part sermon, but I'm not going to be here next week. So just bear with me. It's kind of a long sermon already, isn't it? Let's see. But um, I'm going to finish it. Maybe I should have a time to have you stand up and greet your neighbor or something, although that's not one of the elements. (laughs) 
But I'm going to tell you this. I think we live in a world, as Dan had mentioned in his prayer, sullied with heartache and difficulty. We, we, life can be tough, and we bemoan the current trajectory of our surroundings. I mean, we're kind of feeling frustrated about the direction of our country, although there are other countries that are moving in a different direction. And we see it not only around us, we feel it in ourselves, right? I mean, we feel the pain and the weakness within our own minds, our hearts, and our souls. And I think it's not a bad idea to find out where's this coming from? What's the culprit? What's the source of this direction that we are taking? And though I think there might be many layers of culpability, I mean, I don't want to dismiss our own personal culpability. I think if we really peeled back if we did kind of an infinite regress, if we did a discursive reasoning in terms of the problems by which we're surrounding, we're surrounded, I think we would find the problems are coming from the pulpit. And by the pulpit, I'm talking about the worship service. Because I do believe that the worship service is the place, more than anything else, where God is going, here I am. And when that becomes twisted or bent or perverted, we should, affect, we should expect that the world that should be positively affected by what's going on in that worship service would find itself then in a bad trajectory. I think this fallen world can be compared to a starving and infected body that's in need of an IV, right? You're just, the body is struggling, and we need an IV. Now, let me just be clear here. In the IV, like the medicine, is the blood of Christ. Let's not be unclear about that, right? It's the gospel, that's what, that's what needs to be brought into this body in order for that body to have any healing at all. But the point of contact, the, the needle, right, is the worship of God's people. It's the worship service. If you read in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, just getting beginning, it was through the worshiping of God's people that, quote, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, Acts 2.47. So the community was seeing somehow the worship. And it was through that worship service that eyes were opened and hearts were changed and God added to the people. So in an effort, I mean, I, and again, I don't want to be uncharitable, but I have to tell you, I get really discouraged when I turn on the television and watch televangelists. I mean, it's kind of turned into a, a bit of a show. And I just, you know, I'm like, this is, how, and it's a little discouraging because the, the worse it is, the bigger the stadium. And again, I don't want to be overly critical, but I think that sometimes we have to be discerning. And we're living in a culture that I, don't, I just don't understand how people are buying this. Anyway, having said that, in our efforts to obediently keep that needle straight and clean, what are the elements of worship? What, what are those actions which God has determined to be the source of honor and glory to himself and at the same time, nurturing to us. And I would argue those, those, that's not an either-or thing. The more God is honored, the more nurtured we are. Why, let me ask it this way. Why did you come here today? What, what, what did you think was going to happen? You think this was going to be a big therapy session? What's your role? And you're all sitting there and listening to me. I'm talking, and I expect you to listen. But what? Are you, are you passive? Are you active? Are you a critic? Are you going to go home and write a review? Or are you, a, are you an actual participant? What should be happening in this very critical event that we call church? Well, let me go over very briefly these things we call the elements of worship. Church started today with a call to worship. Now, these might change from church to church. It's not an ironclad thing. The order might, you might find in different churches the order, and I, you know, I don't think by far that we've cornered the market on the perfect order of worship or the perfect liturgy. But there are certain things that should be there, and one of them is a thing called the call to worship. Now, again, I don't want to sound uncharitable, 
But sometimes when I go visit a church, and I may even be speaking at another church, and the worship leader gets up there, you know, and he's like, hey, how's everybody doing? You know, let's worship God together, you know, and everybody starts, the band starts playing and everything, and I'm like, all right, I get what you're doing here, but it, it seems like there's something missing in that very casual concert-like introduction to the worship service. God calls us. We didn't call him here. He called us here. Gather my people. The father sent his son to rescue us from sin and death at a great price. You know, through all eternity, we'll never get to the end of the suffering that Jesus endured. It was the infinite wrath of God. Now we are called, having done that for us, we are called into his palace. The father is saying, I've sent my son to die for you. I I want you to gather in my palace and give honor to his name. Who's going to say no to that? We are called to remember you see, a lot of the, you see the word remember a lot. We're called to remember what has been done for us and praise him for it. The will, if we can call it that, has been read yet again. And we are reminded of our riches and the price paid for them. We are reminded of that. Think of yourself, because the Bible does talk about a testament, like a, like a last will and testament, and God is saying, come, I want you to hear the last will and testament. Who wouldn't go to that, right? Hey, your name came up. Somebody died, and you're going to get something. Who doesn't go to that event, right? But that's what we are called here to do, to hear the last will and testament. The call to worship, as you'll notice if you come to our church, it's always taken from Scripture, It's always the word of God. Because it's important for us to understand that it is God who initiates. We don't meet him halfway. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who acts first. God, through his word and by his spirit, comes before us. We hear his word. And as is so often the case when this type of thing happens in the Bible... You know what happens when people come into the presence of God in the Bible? Their sin becomes very apparent. It's one of the first things that happen. They look at the holiness of God, and you're immediately made aware of your own unholiness. And that leads, really, to the very first thing that we are called to actively do, and that is to confess which really means to agree. When Isaiah was caught up into the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and these angels are singing, right? The song we sang today, right? Holy, 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 the threefold repetition of holy, which is the only attribute of God that we ever see in the Bible brought to the threefold. And the angels are flying around and they're singing holy, holy, holy. You know what Isaiah doesn't do? He doesn't go, hey, maybe I'll sing with you guys. What happens to Isaiah when he is confronted with the glory of God? Here are the words. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Not to get too far into the kitchen here, but this idea of undone. Remember when I was studying that in the Hebrew and you know, remember in cartoons where they have somebody so scared that they're, all of a sudden their one eye becomes like four eyes and their hands and arms come off? because there's, You know that image of being so scared? That's what that word means. It means my body is falling apart. And now what's interesting about that is he doesn't say, and I'm pretty bad, but at least I'm not as bad as the other people by whom I'm surrounded. No, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. It's like an indictment against the whole human race. So friends, the routine and reasonable response to being in the presence of God is utter and complete dismantling of trust in self. J. 
John fell at the feet of the glorified Christ, we're told, as though dead. When Jesus calmed the storm, you know the story of Jesus calming the storm? All the apostles are in the boat. Where's Jesus? Yeah, sleeping. And they're afraid, right? There's a storm. Who wouldn't be? And they finally get him. And they're like, why are you sleeping? Don't you see what's going on here? And he rebukes the storm, right? He stops the storm. He stops the ocean. And you know what? You would think if you were just writing it yourself, it'd be like, and all the apostles were like, wow, finally mellow. Now, you know what it says? It says, in my, in my translation that I translate myself, and then they were really afraid. They went, you have this reassignment of fear, right? They went be, from being afraid of the storm to being afraid of who is in the boat with us. But as the great hymn declares, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." So the liturgical dialogue continues, because God does not leave us in some hopeless condition of fear. You know, I always think to myself, if somebody's visiting the church in the very beginning, you know, there's a lot of, we're sinners. We're sinners, we're sinners. And I'm wondering if people are like, wow, these people have got a self-loathing problem. But hopefully they stick around long enough to hear the good news. A pardon is declared. I think it's fair to say that Isaiah was paralyzed with fear and had no path forward until God commissioned his angel to bring a coal, which was a a type of the gospel, and touch the lips of Isaiah. He's paralyzed, like the cartoon. He can't do anything. And one of those big giant angels with the six wings and all the eyes and goes and goes to the altar and grabs a coal with tongs, can't even touch it, and touches the lips of Isaiah. Remember he said, I'm a man of unclean lips? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your mouth tells you a lot about what's going on in your heart. And then we read this in Isaiah 6, 7. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. You know, we generally approach God with a petition that he may deliver us from certain fears, right? Fear of the world, fear of some temporal difficulty, fear of economics, fear of a health problem or what have you. And you know what? There may be a place for that. I think the apostles were legitimate and going, pretty afraid of this storm. But the deepest fear that we are delivered from is the fear of judgment. Jesus put it this way. In Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And he's talking about God there, in case that's unclear. You know what we need to be reminded of all the time? We need to be reminded that we're pardoned. Our sins are washed away as... uh, As Dan read in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And let me tell you this. If that's true of you, if if your sins are washed away, if you're a child of the living God, then every other problem you have, every lurking fear that's coming out of the shadows in your direction, need not ever be a source of anxiety. And Paul put it this way, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He's not going to send his son to die for us and then neglect us, right? He preserves us. He watches over us. He scrutinizes our path. He knows when we go to bed. He knows when we wake up. If we take the wings of the dawn, right? If we dwell in the remotest part of the sea, behold, he is there. I wake up and he is there. So now worship continues with a renewed appreciation of the realization that our battle with sin, in the very ultimate sense, has already been won. 
Now, I realize we still do our battle, but in an ultimate sense, maybe you walk in here. You ever walk in and go, you know what, I, I feel unworthy to worship today. I had a bad week. I yelled at my kids, or I, I did some wrong thing, and I wish I didn't, and here I am. But when you hear those words, your sins are forgiven, that's God saying, my forgiveness of you seems to be better than yours and your own assessment of yourself. I have truly forgiven you. So why don't we sing? Let's do a little singing about it. Well, there you have it, the next thing, right? A hymn. It's a prominent element of worship. It's singing. I don't know about you. I don't like singing. I mean, at all, ever, in any context. But we're called to sing. And I I like it when other people sing, right? I'm encouraged by the voice of other people, and I think there's a place for that. But I do think this, that if we truly and deeply grasped what has happened really in the first eight minutes of church, that would really affect our singing. And even though our singing is directed toward the one who is worthy of all praise, and I think we all feel this in a very secondary sense, it is also directed to each other. Paul writes that we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. So we're doing it to the Lord, but we're doing it with each other. And you know what? You feel it, don't you? You feel it like, wow, this is, did everybody get a good night's sleep last night? Because the singing doesn't seem like it is. Everybody seems like, you know, we got to put a little more caffeine or have coffee before church instead of after. (laughs) We're told that after Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, they sung a hymn. I have often wondered, I wonder what that sounded like. You know, I don't know, but I'm guessing, I'm guessing pretty good. Keep in mind, you know, just so you understand or the way at least we understand worship leaders in the church and what have you. We do have leaders. You see them up here. Sometimes we have a band. Sometimes we just have the piano. But we're the choir, all of us, Right? God, God is the audience. We're, we're, we've come into his palace, and we are singing to him, all of us. And the instruments, you know, our, our people, when we have more instruments, they're, they're instructed, you keep it down. We don't, be, we don't want to, we want to hear the voices. It's the voices that we want to hear first and foremost. And the leaders... They're, they're not here to dominate, you know, it's like you don't want to, they're here to let us know, which I, by the way, desperately need, when do you start and on what note? Because I need real serious help on those. But then, you know, it's like then they back off and then it's us. And sometimes, you know, providentially God pulls the plug, right, on church, right? I mean, literally the lights go out and we have no sound. I always like that because I feel like, Now we see what we're really made of. (laughs) The congregation, as we obviously did today, has the opportunity to lift our voices to God in one accord. And this isn't the singing, but this is what we did today in the, uh, the reading of the catechism. Sometimes it's the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes it's the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Ten Commandments, or some other reading of Scripture or some other catechism. And as Dan had mentioned in the reading from Bill Shishko, in a secondary sense, these readings are pedagogical, right? You're sitting there, and I, know, I'm, I love to be reminded of it. I'm, I'm being taught. I'm like, oh. And sometimes I have my own questions. Like, what did, what did they mean when they wrote that? You know, and those turns into nice questions during, during uh, Q&A. But I think in a primary sense, when we all say things together, it is the God's people proclaiming together what they believe about the God who has saved them. And we're saying that as a body. What, you know, sometimes our elders will say, Christians, what do you believe? And then we'll be, I believe in God the Father. I mean, so there's this declaration. 
Then we move from there to the very fun topic of tithes and offerings. Well, tithes and offerings are listed under the deeds of worship. We read in Deuteronomy 12.6, You shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offering of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. So we see this as part of, of worship. And I think that similar to any other portion of worship, we should seek to develop a proper engagement in our tithes and offerings. We, we need to have the right heart, the right disposition when that part of the church service is taking place. And I, I'm not going to go into detail here because I just gave my once-in-a-decade sermon last week, I think, on tithes and offerings. I just want us to be reminded of this. We are to approach this portion of the church service not merely as business, but as worship. Then we have, and this again, I think in general churches do and should do this, we have a thing called the pastoral prayer. It's corporate prayer. We all pray. You know, one of the very few descriptions that Jesus ever gave about the temple. What did Jesus call the temple? Anybody know? It was a house of prayer. Right? When he was chastised, he he goes, you've taken the house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. It's a house of prayer. Paul exhorts his young mentor, Timothy, in the ministry that prayers should be made for all people. That the church should pray. You know, and we pray for people in our own church. We pray for the governments. We pray for the missionaries. You know, so there's a a list of things that we are called to pray for. We pray for all people, all men. And you know what? Prayer is not very controversial. In the Westminster Confession, there's 33 chapters. All these things were written because there was controversy. There's not one chapter of prayer. Because everybody knows we should pray. But I'm going to tell you, I find prayer very hard. I find it to be a workout. And as I started studying the Bible on this, I realized I'm not the only one. We're told that Epaphras is, quote, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Struggling. So I looked that word up. I'm like, well, what does that word mean? And the Greek word, let's see if you can figure out what word we have. Ag- wait, agonizomai. Agaz- what, what word do we have that sounds like that? Agonizing. He's agonizing in his prayers. Paul writes that his readers must strive with him in their prayers. Jacob wrestled with God. You ever wrestled? I did. I wasn't very good. But I'll tell you this, it's very tiring. And we have this time of prayer, and I know it's hard. It's like mental, and it can be, be, we need to stay dialed in on that. We need to work. That's followed by, and I really think this needs to be part of the church service, the sermon. And it should be 22 minutes maximum. (laughs) You know, the central focus of the church is the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples. To deliver the good news, we read in Romans 10, 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. There is a glorious command, we read in Acts 10, 42 and 43, to preach to the people of a day of judgment, but also of forgiveness that comes through Jesus. And it's the responsibility of whoever's up here, whether it's me or another pastor, we read in Nehemiah 8, 7, to help the people to understand the law and give the sense so that the people understood the reading. So we all have a responsibility to avail ourselves of others, primarily the pastor, to help us understand, well, what does the Bible mean? We're going to read it, but what does it mean? And let me tell you something else going back to remote church and just being at home reading books and all this stuff. 
I think in order to achieve this, the pastor needs to know his congregation. I think the pastor needs to know their maturity level. I think he needs to know their intellectual capacity. I think he needs to understand the struggles that they have. What are they going through as a congregation? You see, the books in the Bible were generally written to specific churches regarding specific issues. Paul didn't just sit there and go, hey, maybe I'll write a, a letter to Corinth. No, he wrote a letter to Corinth because it came to his attention things were happening in Corinth that Corinth needed to deal with, right? And I think sermons need to be the same. Sermons need to, at some level, even though we're exegeting the text, we're in the Bible, the focus, the emphasis needs to be, what is my congregation weak at? What do they need encouragement in? What do they need a rebuke in? And so forth. We need to know each other in order for that to be achieved. And you know what? I'm a little nervous about AI. I haven't done an AI sermon yet. But I don't think, at least yet, they don't know you. Unless we have you all do an AI interview. Right? So I can write a better sermon. No, you see, these types of things can't happen online or from a book. We, we need to know each other. Our elders, we get together we pray for the whole congregation, and they'll kind of share things like going, yeah, this family's struggling with this and that and this and that, and I'll realize that needs to be a point of emphasis in a sermon. And there's, there are people, and I'm telling you, whoever's driving, listening to this on the radio, you know, when this comes out in a few weeks, I appreciate the fact that, you know, this might help you, and you'll benefit from this. Hopefully, you'll make a donation to the radio show. I'm sure that's a violation of the regular principle. But I'm, you have, you need, I'm not your pastor. You need to find a church. You need to have a pastor. You need to have elders. You had, there is a defined relationship between the members and the leaders of the church, and you need to have that for your own good. Back to the sermon, it is your responsibility to actively listen to receive and respond. Now, let me tell you, I try to make that, to be honest with you, I try to make that as easy as I can, other than my lack of ability to write a short sermon. But I, I'm like looking out going, are they getting it? Do they understand? Do I need to tone it down a little bit? Do I need a little lean out here? And, you know, where it's just heavy, 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 heavy. Maybe I'll stop and tell a story about spraying my wife with a hose. Everybody relaxes a little bit. But I think there needs to be, on your part, a real effort at being a good student. And I think with that, you need to be, not, I'm gonna, not in a negative way, but you need to be critical. Not, not critical in a negative way, but you need to be like the noble-minded Baran who were checking the scriptures daily to see if what the Apostle Paul was saying was actually biblical. Right? We are to test all things and hold to what is true. You, you need to kind of, and you need to, and I, I'm, I'm committed to be open to you to come up to me with your Bible open and go, I don't think so. And we can have that discussion. You know, here's something else. Sermons, sermons contain, they can contain that which is simple. The Bible calls that milk. And they can also contain things that are deep and difficult. The Bible calls that solid food. Now, how to listen to a sermon could be its own sermon. And maybe when I come back, I'll bring all these things out and protract them. For now, I'm just going to say this. That you may not understand everything that I'm saying, but if you're attentive, you'll understand some things. I kind of think to myself when I'm writing a sermon, you know, there's going to be two-year-olds, three-year-olds. We want the kids in here. It's a family meal, Right? So the kids are there, but I also, we have seminary graduates, you know, and I'm like, all right, there needs to be something for them. So, so you might go, wow, I'm kind of lost, but, you know, I'm like, I'm committed to make sure you understand something. And I'll tell you this, if you are consistent in your attendance, you're going to understand more and more and more. And you, it won't bother you, and I think we have a reputation for being kind of like heady, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but if we are heady, where would you rather go, because you never graduate from church, right, you, until you go to 
the church victorious. Where would you rather go? What kind of class would you rather go to for the rest of your life? Kindergarten or graduate school? Right? And so you need to, but you need to be there. And you, if you're doing your homework and you're studying, then all of a sudden, this is something that becomes much easier to hear. And I'll tell you something else. The message should focus on Christ. Wherever church you go to, the message should focus on Christ. And there should always be a call to action. And you know what? That call to action, it may just be worship. The application just may, may be Boy, God was greater than I realized. Let's sing that next song. Or it may be some behavioral change in your life. Either way, either way, I'm going to challenge you with this. We should listen in such a way that we can respond the way Peter's sermon was responded to in Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Every one of us should walk out of here going, in light of what I just heard today, what should I do? The sacraments. We're winding it up here. Here's something that's really sad. If you asked, and I've done this, if you asked people to make a top ten list of the things that are most important to their spiritual welfare, you know what would not make the list today? the Lord's Supper, or baptism. Talk about things that are viewed as expendable. Well, this is a great, great departure, not only from the history of the church. People, People were put to death because of their views on the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now it's in the back, they're in the back room. But it's also a departure from Scripture. Now, I think it would be overly ambitious for me to get into the details and meaning and value of the sacraments, of which, by the way, there are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's enough for now to say that they are a means of grace. It's a way that God brings grace into our, our lives. And there is something, if I could put it this way, deep and dangerous and a bit mysterious about how God works through these things. And it is of great detriment to the church and Christians to neglect the sacraments. It should also be noted that publishers, station managers, and your internet provider cannot offer you baptism in the Lord's Supper. It is a corporate communion with God and with each other. Finally, the church concludes with a thing called a benediction. It's not in the notes, but you know what's interesting? You know, those of you who've been here a while know that if you're not an ordained teaching elder, the role I have, pastor, you can't pronounce the benediction. There's certain things you can't do. One of them is you can't do the benediction. And I remember thinking, that's odd, because the benediction is just kind of the way to close out the service, right? And you read it. You're just reading a scripture. And yet, our denomination thought it was so important to recognize that this should not be done by just anybody. We, our denomination is, is kind of like, no, we want to stand your pastor up in a room with about 100 elders and pastors and grill him for three hours, which happened to me, to make sure he can give the benediction. That's how, that's how important the benediction actually is. And what is the benediction? Well, benediction, right? Good word. It means just to speak well. I mean, it's generally viewed as a blessing, and it's not really a prayer. And that's why you, oftentimes you'll hear people say, you know, head up, eyes open, and, I'm an, and then the benediction is pronounced, although I don't, I tend to not make a big deal about it if you want to close your eyes, or some pastors are like, oh, no, it's one hand, some are two hands. I don't know, man. I heard one seminary professor go, you know, it's not one hand, you're not calling for a taxi. And I'm like, well, two hands looks like somebody's robbing you. <laughs> well, I, maybe that matters more than I'm allowing it to matter. So come to me with your Bible in your hand and go, no, no, Pastor Paul, it really matters a lot. But I'm going to tell you this about the benediction as we close. After getting married, I developed a new appreciation for the benediction. And let me tell you how. Maybe you guys would be shocked at this, but my wife and I, even though I think we both enjoy each other immensely, occasionally have a disagreement. 
Any of you have a disagreement with your spouse? And, I, and I'm the kind of person, I don't like it not to be well, right? I'm like, can we make up right now? And sometimes she just needs a little time, right? The wound is still open, and, but I'm like, don't let the sun go down on your anger, says the pastor. <laughs> that really helps when I do that, <laughs> by the way. But there does come a time, and you all have experienced this, I think, when words are spoken that reveal this, things are fine, right? We're good. How much deeper with God? How much deeper with God when, you know, we're here, we're going to be leaving in a few minutes for God to say, you know what? It's well with us. Go in peace. Of course, all of this assumes that we are truly children of God. Let me tell you this, the best and most accurate of church services becomes a testimony to our own judgment if these things are not participated in, in faith, by truly believing. And if you have true, sincere faith, then the benediction is yours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would watch over and preserve our church. I do thank you for the people you've brought in, the elders and the deacons and the members who, at least by my estimation, seem to have their Bibles open and are so hungry to know, Father, your wise counsel. So we do pray that you would watch over and preserve our church and help us, Father, to um, be faithful members. And when you say, gather my people, that we might be numbered among those people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.